Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So what you see in Hollywood, um, a lot of that is very accurate. And everything in the movie, you know, in terms of um, the woman and the reactions and the movement and the, you know, the manipulation of the body, that was all very accurate. Because demons can manipulate a physical body, human body, any way they want. They have the power to do that. to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. This is take four. <laughs> we really couldn't get it together on oh, this one. Oh, gosh. It's me. It's all me it's right okay. now. It's okay. We got a lot going on. We're about to do a Facebook Live. Yeah. But here we are coming to you with our final Halloween episode. And oh, my gosh, John, you really, you really had some vision on this one. Who do we got? I wish I could take claim to this one, but it was actually a fan who was listening to our Halloween series last year. And he, he emailed us and was like, Hey, if you guys ever want to talk to, to, to really talk to somebody who will terrify you, he's like, you should look up this dude. And I was like, that's a great idea. Oh, we love you, fans. So we did. Listeners, participants, fellow deconstructionists. Yeah, I mean, again, like I feel like we have to preface totally all of our ha- Halloween uh, episodes by saying, like, look, we don't know where we stand on this, like this subject matter or or this concept or whatever, but like. It's at least an interesting thing to think about, something that we probably should think about, mm-hmm. and like at least listen to the information at hand. And and there are some things that, you know, I'll admit, like when I was listening to them, I'm like, wow, that's that's terrifying. And there are some moments where I was like, ah, man, I just can't quite not there, you know, you know, intellectually go there. Right. But I'm still willing to entertain it because I, you know, like we've said from the beginning, I could be totally wrong about everything. Right. That's the whole... Okay, listen. A lot of times we have people on here because, honestly, they're just people we're into right now and we just want to hear what they have to say. And this is kind of a chronicling of your journey of faith and my journey of faith and now bringing listeners in. And it's kind of like this live living thing. And a lot of that is going to be just people we want to hear. But we have to intentionally break the echo chamber. We have to intentionally bring voices in that we may or may not lean towards naturally just to stay true to the freaking theme yeah. of this whole show. And I think I don't think other than having Timothy freaking Keller on here, yeah, uh, I don't think that there's any better person than, who, who, who's this? Who do, we ha- who do we have here? We have Father Gary Thomas. Hugh Scary Music. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So if, if, uh, if you're as huge of a fan of horror movies as Adam and I are, then you probably have seen the movie The Right, starring Anthony Hopkins. And if you have, that movie is based off of a book um, that is based off a true story 
about a Catholic priest um, and, and his basically his life's work yeah. as a uh, Vatican certified exorcist. And it's based off of Gary Thomas's father, Gary Thomas's uh, career and his life. Yep. And so he was a consultant on the show. And so we thought, oh. I mean, at the very least, the exorcist is still, I think the most terrifying movie to me Yeah. of all time. It and is. So, I mean, cause what if it's real? Exactly. And as soon as you ask that question, you're like, I'm going to wet my pants. Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, absolutely. So yeah, full disclaimer, don't know where we stand on this stuff. Still working it out. Um, so many things we can talk about, but let's save all that for after the interview. So uh, what else you got? I'm just going to say, you know, Father Gary Thomas is, is still uh, serving out in uh, the Diocese of San Jose. Um, he's, he is a Vatican certified exorcist. Um, he actually went to Rome uh, and, and studied there under, uh, under a mentor and uh, was actually like, like I said, certified, right? I guess you go through a certification type thing. Apparently it was Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Yes. Or a Anthony Hopkins like individual. Um, but yeah, so he, he still currently acts as a, as an exorcist out in the California area and had some crazy stories to tell. And on top of that, uh, like, like I mentioned before, there's a book based on his life and his work uh, came out in 2009 called uh, The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist by uh, Matt Baglio, I think is how you pronounce it. Sounds good. B-A-G-L-I-O. So if you want to check that out, please do. Um, otherwise, I don't really know what else to say other no. than buckle up. Buckle up. <laughs> Without further ado, we give you Father, Father Gary, Gary freaking Thomas. Thomas. Yeah, non-denominational I mean, mainly. A little, I mean, little bit of Lutheran. That's fine. Um, the, 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 the ministry of exorcism would be a, a, a service. Um, it would be a service within the church. So I don't mean by that a church service, but I mean by that a pastoral service. Right. It's okay. a form of pastoral care. So that's why I asked you what your backgrounds were, because at least we can kind of talk a common language. Because oh, yeah. All, all Christians and all Christian churches would use the word ministry, just about all would, would use the word ministry as a way of expressing the kind of care that the church tries to provide for our people. And so, yes, I'm a full-time priest, and I'm, and I, I mean, I am a full, I mean, that kind of is an oxymoron. As a priest, in the Catholic sense, you know, that it's sort of like there's 31 flavors. So, you know, there's lots of ways that priests serve in the church, and I happen to be what we would call a diocesan priest, which means that I'm a, I'm, I'm basically a parish priest. So I serve in a parish, but there's other ministries that priests who are parish priests can also be involved in. I mean, some can teach in high schools. They don't have to necessarily be part of a religious order, although usually all of these sort of specialized ministries, more often than not, are done by religious orders. In the Ministry of Exorcism, usually, um, but not limited to, because I have plenty of examples of guys who are in religious orders and who do this too, um, it's usually a priest, it, it's always a priest selected by the bishop, whether he be a 
attached to a religious order or he's a priest of a local diocese um, who, who serves at the pleasure of the bishop and either can be uh, designated on a case-by-case basis or can be what you call mandated. I happen to be mandated. And so, um, but it is a ministry. It's a recognized ministry within the church. It's been with the, it's been part of the church since the time of Jesus. Wow. Who performed exorcisms himself. And right. that's in the scripture. So, so we, we, we kind of just jumped in, but, um, uh, for, for, for those of our listeners who, who aren't familiar, we are speaking with, uh, with, uh, Father Gary Thomas. Um, you were located in, in California and, uh, uh, so how many, because my understanding was as of 2011, there were only around 14 uh, exorcists, uh, you know, sanctioned by the, the Catholic Church. Is, is that still a relatively low number or has it increased since then? Oh, no, it's increased. It's increased exponentially, really, since the movie. Oh, wow. But, but I think, I mean, I think the movie, I think the movie did move the needle, but I also think more and more bishops are facing more and more people who are calling for um, either an investigation into their uh, personal struggles in which they would require an exorcist or that they think they require an exorcist because there's a discernment process that's always a part of you know this. So when I get a call and someone says to me, which is often the case, I need an exorcism. I don't do them on request. That doesn't happen that way. That may not be what they need. There's a whole discernment process, and it's fairly involved. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't even meet any longer. By I'm not usually the first contact. My team is, although I get lots of calls, mm. because I just don't have the time. I mean, I could have 10 calls a week, often. Wow. So, and the team, I have a team of seven people um, who are my prayer team, and they take the calls and they do basically the, the kind of the vetting in terms of, you know, you know, how do we approach this person? Now, because of the movie and the book, I get emails from all over the world and phone calls from all over the world, too. And so what we try and do is direct people back to their local bishop, regardless of whatever part of the the United States they live in. I usually don't take calls from outside the United States. I get them, but I, I mean, the cost of returning some of these phone calls is enormous because I have, and then we end up getting, you know, paying a tremendous amount of money for a phone call that might last five minutes. And it's, you know, you're to Bangladesh or somewhere. So yeah. I don't, I mean, emails I'll respond to. Absolutely. I respond to all the emails. Father Thomas, just for the record, which um, movie and book were you talking about? Just so our listeners know. They're, they're, oh, sure. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, the movie, pardon me, the, the book is entitled The Right, R-I-T-E. It was published in 2009. The author is Matt Balio, who then later wrote the book Argo that went with the movie Argo. Oh. But his first book was, was The Right. And I met Matt when I took the course on exorcism at the Regina Apostolorum Seminary in Rome when I was on my sabbatical back in, in 2005, 2006. He was taking the course. He's married. He has a little boy. Well, actually, his son is no longer a little boy. He's probably a teenager now. Um, and he met his wife in Rome. He grew up in California, went to University of California, Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara, grew up in San Diego. And I met him at the course, and we became friendly acquaintances initially. And then 
eventually, when uh, it was very, very clear I really needed to find a, a mentor or a teacher under whom to train while this course was going on and beyond, that Matt asked, because he was a freelance journalist by, by profession, if he could write a book about my experiences. And I said in a very kind of casual way, sure, go ahead. I had no idea the book would become, you know, a very well-known book, and that Warner Brothers would then buy the rights to the book and make a movie out of it with the same title, and the star in the movie is Anthony Hopkins. And I worked on the movie for a week with Anthony Hopkins back in 2011, uh, 2010. Then the movie was released in 2011. I saw that movie in the theater with my brother-in-law. Yep. Oh, and it that was... movie's about me. When John told me that, because John set this interview up, I, w- I was so excited to tell my brother-in-law, and, and now everybody, yeah. that, that we get to speak with you, because this is so fascinating. Well, I think, without, you know, from an objective point of view, I mean, not everything in that movie is true in and of itself. So in other words, not everything in that movie happened to me, but there isn't anything in that movie that isn't, couldn't legitimately happen. Oh I mean, the, my character was portrayed not by Anthony Hopkins. He was my mentor. The young priest was me, yeah. although I was, not, I was not on the way out of the church. I hadn't lost my faith. I was ordained 22 years in real life. So, you know, I always tell people the movie's a movie. But I've, right, right, given, right. Lots, I've given lots of talks. When the, movie, when the movie was released, I was down in Hollywood with the red, at the red carpet with Tony Hopkins and the crew and my mom and dad and siblings. And, you know, it's kind of like, I can't believe this is actually happening, but you also, you know, it's, what's important to keep in mind is that it's a movie. And, and also, you know, my ego is, is not so, you know, inflated that I don't recognize that in real life, you know, everyone who, who comes to see me is suffering. Mm. And, and that's, you know, the, Christ is the exorcist, not me. And so I've never lost sight of that. So, you know, I, I just never got, like, overly impressed with the movie. I mean, I thought, well, that's a great opportunity to evangelize people. But I, I never, I just never let it go to my head. None of that stuff ever did. Because, honestly, when you're in the trenches and you're involved in an exorcism or a deliverance, you know, and you've got the person in front of you, the, the, the suffering is palpable, and sometimes the preternatural activity is right in front of you. It makes everything else you do pale because, you know, you're, you're in major combat with, with Satan or one of his or a group of his agents, and, and it's very sobering. Um, and a lot of people think this is all kind of, you know, medieval and superstitious and it's all kind of made up and... And it's not. None of it is. I never doubted there was a Satan. I had just never, ever seen what I see now until I actually um, went to Rome and then found Father Carmen to work under and then began observing, you know, exorcisms and deliverances with him and seeing the same kinds of manifestations in person after person and realizing, okay, this must be real. So one of the things you mentioned at the at the very beginning is you you said that there you know you have a team that that kind of um, uh, takes a look at the person first and and I've I've noticed that in other interviews you've talked about the fact that there are uh, there's a whole uh, array of different uh, 
tests, medical, psychological that they have to go through in order to rule out, you know, a lot of other things. So maybe maybe you could talk about that a little bit. And also there are, there are also, I've read, um, I think uh, if I remember correctly, six classic signs that, that they have to kind of meet in order uh, to fulfill, you know, the, the requirements that they would need to, uh, to be eligible. Well, let me answer the second question first, then I'll answer the first one. It does not require, the protocol in the Roman Catholic tradition does not require that all six signs must be um, manifested in order for an exorcism to happen. You actually only need one. And so um, it's rare that I would see all six signs. But there are six classic signs uh, of a demonic condition. And I like to use the word condition as opposed to possession because not every person who comes, in fact, it's rare that a person would come and they are suffering from basically a complete demonic possession. That means in our world whereby a demon or much more accurately, a, a tribe of demons, and that's what they're called because there's never just one, there's a tribe. A tribe of demons has taken basically full control over the body of a human being. That does not mean that they're taking control of the soul. It just means they're taking control of the body. Most people who are full possessions have a very, very difficult time functioning, even at a basic level. And I have, I've encountered that a few times. The majority, however, where there is a demonic condition, as I refer to them as a condition rather than using the tech, the tech, the kind of the, the technical terms, because for exorcist, the word obsession and oppression don't always mean the same thing. So, for me, an oppression refers to a kind of depression, and an obsession has characteristics of what we would say would be psychotic hallucinations, visual or auditory. And so, um, you have to sort all that stuff out. Now, there is a fourth level, and it's called integration. And integration means where the person has chosen to accept the demon. Those people don't usually come to see me. Or if they do come to see me, uh, and I had one recently come and see me, we're really in, they're in big trouble. Because not only have they crossed the line, they basically now want to sever the the relationship between the demonic and themselves. And Satan is like the mafia. He's, you know, once you're in, you can't get out. Or it's very difficult to get out. And so usually the people that come to see me, if there is something of a demonic condition present, it's usually of a kind whereby they can function. They can have a family, raise their kids, have a job, drive their car. Um, It's just that when they're in the presence of the holy, such as a church or even a priest or some other example of holiness, that um, they have they get sick or they have very, very strong adverse reactions. And that can be a sign. It is usually a sign of a demonic problem. So, but you have to discern all that. So, and even in the, in the forward of the, of the ritual, of the, the, the psalm rite of exorcism, it's very clear in there, the exorcist must consult experts in other fields. So on my team, I have the prayer team, which is one team. Then I have a team of professionals. I have, a medical doctor, 
I have um, two clinical psychologists. One is bilingual. I have two psychiatrists. One is bilingual. Actually, yeah, one, they're both, yeah. No, they're actually both bilingual. And, and, and then there are times when I've got to go find somebody who knows something about certain kind of drugs, like a toxicologist, or sometimes if people have been abused, uh, they can easily become dissociative, which means they have multiple personalities. You have to know who to go talk to about those things because sometimes it's, 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 it can happen whereby a person may have what we call a dissociative disorder where they may have altered personalities. And an altered personality is not a demon or a spirit. An altered personality is, is basically a shattered portion of the person's whole person that has, is trying to cope with the trauma of sexual abuse most of the time. So you've got to be able to sort all those things out. So that's why I have somebody who specializes in dissociative disorders. And, you know, and you've got to know, you basically need to know a little about a lot. It's very entrepreneurial. I mean, it really truly is. You have to know a little about a lot. Wow. And, and that, but that's, you know, again, I'm not a therapist. So I need to go, okay, who do I know? Or who, who might know someone who can put me in touch with somebody who deals with, multiple personality disorders and help me figure out, am I dealing with a, a multiple or am I dealing with a demon? So everybody on the, t- almost everybody on the team are all practicing Catholics. I mean, I prefer that because most therapists do not believe in anything spiritual. Uh, That's not to be judgmental of them. It's just a state of fact. Most therapists are atheists or agnostics. And so I have to have people who have a faith optic, because at least it has to be allowed that it be an option to consider in the discernment process of what is the root cause of the person's particular suffering as we understand it. Yeah, it makes a it makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that we'd love to hear uh, your perspective on is just you know what what is a demon? I mean, what what do you guys like? What's the yeah? Could you just explain a little bit like when we talk about de- demonic uh, sure. oppression, de- or tribes of demons, a, or you know, yeah, sure. a, a demon, a demon is an angel that has chosen to follow the path that is in rebellion against God. So when, when, the, when the rebellion in heaven, according to the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation, when the rebellion in heaven, in heaven took place, a third of the angels, allegedly, a third of the angels, according to Scripture, joined Lucifer, the angel of light, in opposition to God over envy and jealousy of the human race. And that's what this is all about. And so... Demons do not lose their office, nor do they lose their nature. Their nature is spirit. Their office is angelic. In the same way, our nature as human beings is 
corporeal. Our office is human, but our, our nature is corporeal. In other words, we have bodies and spirits. We call our spirit our soul, as opposed to the angelic, they're pure spirits. So the angelic realm or the angelic nature is of a higher nature than the human nature. So angels have no bodies. They can travel faster than we can. They are far more intelligent and powerful than we are. And their sense of free will is far keener than ours is. That's why in the scriptures, the demons can't be saved because they knew in a very, very deeper, clearer, beyond a shadow of a doubt way that God is God and that the Trinity, the Trinity predates creation. It's just that when God, when, when God chose to become incarnate, there was always three persons in the Trinity. The Trinity was not an evolution. The Trinity, the Trinity is static in the fact of its structure. The Trinity, however, continues to evolve because God continues to evolve. You know, God is constant, but God is also evolving at the same time because of, because, uh, because of time and space. So God's love for us is unchangeable because God is the source of all creation. But God also evolves in that we learn more about God as we ourselves grow in our maturity of faith. And so therefore, when, when God, Jesus, when he comes, it's in response to humanity's fall from grace. It wasn't that God, the Father, sends the Son, who's not already in, who's, who, who, let me see, how do I say this in a better way? It's not like the incarnation is an evolution. It's that the second person of the Trinity always was. God's decision to become incarnate happens as a result of the fall from grace. But it isn't like God the Creator dredged up the second person and then the Father and the Son together formed the Holy Spirit. It was already in place as the love of the Father and the Son, yes, create the Spirit, but it all was what didn't happen in response to the fall from grace. And so therefore, the, 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 the demonic operate, they operate in a community of chaos, in, in the absolute opposite of how the angelic operate with Christ. They operate in a community of harmony because of their love for God. On the other hand, the demonic operate in a community of chaos because of their hatred for the human race and of God and oh. their rebellion. So, so one of the questions that I, I, I know some of our listeners will, will, will want me to ask um, is, so we have a loving God. We have these rebellious angels. Um, why not, you know, from God's perspective, why not just cause these, these rebellious angels to cease to exist instead of um, allowing them the power and the opportunity to essentially, you know, 
um, dabble and mess with, with human beings, his creation. In order that God provide us with a very clear choice as to whom we owe allegiance. Do we choose to give allegiance to God or do we choose to give allegiance to the evil one? And so God gives Satan boundaries and he allows Satan to operate within those boundaries throughout the course of time. At the end of the age, which we call the parousia in the Greek, meaning the end times, the end of the world, Satan and his and, and the demonic will be destroyed. But until such time, they operate within boundaries. And they operate within boundaries for God's greater glory, basically, as well as to give human beings a very clear path and choice in terms of the direction they want to live their lives in. So I think this is the perfect time to, to get into, so what, uh, what factors contribute to a person potentially becoming possessed? That's a good question. Well, um, when people come in uh, and, and seek our counsel and assistance, we're always listening when, in the interviews we're always listening for doorways. So a person really has, I would say, the vast majority of cases of people who might serve are people who basically have gotten the attention of a demon because they've conjured the demonic or the spiritual um, through artificial devices. And so, you know, the occult is all about power and knowledge. We live in a time, in, we live in a time now when classic religion, not just Christianity, but I think classic religion in general is on, on a great big steep decline. And a lot of it is, and certainly Christianity specifically, is because of the fact that People want what they want. They want it now. You know, the economy of prayer is too, is, is too much effort and time and trouble. They want what they want now. The occult gives people what they want now, but you pay a big price for it. You pay a big price for it because once you start dabbling in, you know, witchcraft, magic, sorcery, crystals, um, Ouija boards, tarot card readings, uh, seeking psychics, you are, opening, you are opening doors to the spirit world. And it's, the, and it's the side of the spirit world that is not necessarily godly. In fact, it's mostly anti-godly. Um, and it's anti-godly because it's, it's a cheap imitation of you know, being able to move outside of the material world. And so when we, when we meet with people, we ask them those kinds of questions. I mean, we ask them questions about their upbringing, too. You know, what was it like growing up in your home? Tell me about your relationship with your father or your mother. Um, any history of addictions, drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography. Um, pornography is a doorway. Drugs can be a doorway. Um, if they've had any history with the occult, um, we need to know about those things. And very often there is. There, 
there, there, there has been prior activity and maybe activity that is even going on up to the time they come to see us. So I would say the majority of people, they've basically waved the flag saying, I'm interested. And the interest really comes in the implication of, you know, using conjuring devices or other means, rituals and other means to tap into this, that, that part of the spirit world. Now, there are times when um, people can have a spell put on them without their knowledge or without their will involved. And very often, if a person has not been living, you know, a life of godliness, sometimes those, those, um, uh, those spells can actually take hold. The effects of them can take hold. Or if a child in the womb is exposed to the occult, usually by the mother of the child in the womb, who either seeks the, um, a tie with a witch doctor, or they themselves are involved in the practice of the occult or Satanism. Um, you know, a, a, fetuses are very vulnerable to the demonic. And fetuses can be, um, they, they can suffer from a, a demonic condition very, very early before they're born. And that has sometimes been the case. And you have to ask all those questions when you sit with someone. And then if you see signs um, in, the, in the course of prayer, which you pray with people, they call them deliverance prayer, which is a, in a sense also part of the diagnostic, then you know that there is something of a preternatural presence that's there. So we, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but there are, there are six, six signs that you look for, right? And so what, if you could go over some, you know, the, the signs that, that you're kind of looking for when you're... Sure. Yeah. An aversion to the sacred. In other words, um, you know, a question that would come up would be, you know, um, let's just say they're Catholic. Most people who come to me are Catholic, but Satan does not limit himself to Catholics. Um, but most people who come are. So if a person um, has been involved in, say, the practice of witchcraft for five years and um, has been involved in you know, per- performing spells or gotten people to perform spells on others, usually for, it's either for one of two reasons, it's either for retaliation or manipulation. And then they themselves... Um, begin to show um, symptoms of uh, illness when they go to Mass or uh, when it comes time to receive the Eucharist, there is a a very strong, pungent odor emitted from the the consecrated host or during the reception of the Eucharist when you swallow the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus, there's great pain in the swallowing down through one's esophagus. Uh, or you go to mass, you go to a church, even a Christian church, not necessarily even a Catholic church, and you become ill because you walk in and you feel this this sense of of fear for no apparent reason. That's one. That's one sign. Another sign would be uh, during during deliverance prayer, a person, the demon exhibits incredible 
uh, and inordinate amounts of physical strength that a, a person doesn't normally possess. That's another one. Another one would be uh, where they begin speaking in a language they don't have any competency in. That's usually done. That usually occurs during during deliverance prayer or rite of exorcism. Another would be um, a knowledge the demon is able to um, articulate knowledge of hidden things that the person himself would not know about either me or the team or something else. Um, another sign would be foaming at the mouth where there would be the expulsion of large um, ball-like um, globs of, of sputum that the person would cough up uh, during prayer. Um, it isn't like shaving cream foam, but it is very distinct in its expulsion, not only because of its color, but also because of the length of time that the person might endure in coughing up all of this mucus. But it's a sign of casting. It's actually a good thing. And then the last sign would be um, epileptic-like seizures that take place during prayer or during the the presence of being in the presence of the holy, where a person's face will distort, their limbs will be out of control. Um, they might fall on the floor and begin to manipulate their tongue like something you'd see in, in a snake, you know, an animal planet. So those are the six signs. stuff you know yeesh man so i would love and you know i think our our listeners would definitely um be intrigued um obviously you know some some things about your ministry have been recorded in book form and even in film form but uh just you know for us here if if you can would you be willing to maybe talk about a case that uh you remember that you know expanded your whole awareness of what was going on so you know you walk in believing one thing and after the case is over, you go, oh, man, it's, it's more, it's bigger. This shocked me. This surprised me. Um, you remember anything like that that you'd care to share with us? Um, as you were, you know, and I've been asked that question lots of times. Um, I mean, a, a one, one amongst many uh, took place a few years ago when um, a man was brought to me from another diocese, actually. Because they had no they had no exercise exorcist in this particular diocese, and it's not too far from here. And the person had actually manifested at the um, Easter vigil in the cathedral at the feet of the bishop, and they had no exorcist. So I was called, and the person came um, with family, and um, you know what what really took place were these ferocious manifestations uh, during prayer. Um, that was the result of um, the, pers- the person being um, exposed to the demonic in the womb, whereby the father of this man did not believe that his wife was carrying his child. He was suspicious that his wife 
was carrying the child to someone else. So he started performing acts of witchcraft on his wife, and she in turn began retaliating by doing the same thing. When the child himself was two, he was molested by a half-brother and a cousin. And so that provided the doorway for the demonic to come in. So that the child was already exposed to the witchcraft, but it was the abuse that provided, in a sense, the engine uh, to usher in uh, the presence of the demonic. And so this guy, for years, felt that there was something tied to him, but he always thought it was his guardian angel. He always felt there was something attached. But it wasn't until he was 35 that the demonic was threatened enough sufficiently in the cathedral and uh, exposed, basically manifested. And uh, it, it caused this guy uh, tremendous hardship. And so we worked with him for about four years. <clears throat> and we finally concluded our time with him because he was at that time unwilling to continue certain disciplines that were required, such as worship every week and confession every month. Later, he sought out the help of an exorcist who was then appointed at the same diocese. And that exorcist, who's a personal friend of mine, was actually able to finally and fully deliver him from the clutches of Satan. Wow. So I, I wonder if you could just for a moment, because you, you use the term manifested uh, several times. What, what exactly does that mean in the context of, of the situation? A manifestation would be the display of um, the, dis- the display of a reaction to prayer. That is, that would be considered um, abnormal. So during prayer, where the person begins to roll their eyes or begins to foam at the mouth or begins to curse and swear in a language they have no competency in, um, that's, what I can, that's what I mean by manifestation. It's, it's, a, it's a physical reaction to the power of prayer. That is, in a sense, a perversion of how prayer should, um, of, it's a perversion of the effect that prayer should have on a person. So if a person is not afflicted, then the effect that the prayer is going to have is going to be one that may be uplifting, challenging, um, affirming, um, and illuminating. In the case when you're praying with someone who has a demonic condition, it is illuminating, but it's illuminating in not in a way that would seem to affirm um, the power of the faith of the person, but it would affirm that there is a separate, intelligent, spiritual being that has been threatened sufficiently to be able no longer to hide. And so therefore, and that's what a manifestation is. It's, it's, a, it's a perversion of, of the effect of what prayer normally should have. And so when you see the eyes rolling, or you see the person, hearing the person speak in a language they don't under, they don't, they've never spoken, or 
uh, many of these other kinds of behaviors, the falling off the chair, the manipulation of the tongue, the, uh, the a spirit, basically a, a completely separate intelligent being um, speaking through the the um, the um, the host of the person who has a soul and and basically taking over the person that's what I mean by manifestation so you know in, in a lot of the movies I, I think you know pro- most people who you know like horror movies have probably seen at one time or another a movie about someone who's you know possession at the very least the exorcist and that sort of thing and and obviously, you know, I would probably assume that the vast majority of those are, are very much, um, you know, uh, unrealistic in terms of what a, an actual exorcism looks like. But um, one of the commonalities or one of the common themes anyway that seem to, to pop up in these types of movies is that, you know, when, when the demon or, you know, Satan is speaking to the exorcist, um, it almost sounds like another voice or, or several voices. Is that something that's actually uh, a real occurrence, or is that something that's just kind of a Hollywood uh, vehicle, if you will? No, that's accurate. Wow. Much of what you, what much of what you see in the movies is very accurate. So when you saw the movie The Right, and I worked on the scenes involving the pregnant woman, who became impregnated by her father in the case of incest. All of those movements, those are all very accurate. Now, the critics panned the movie and said that was unrealistic, but honestly, they are all very ignorant. Those are very accurate because the director kept saying to me, what do you think, what do you think? I mean, I've been physically attacked. Now, I have a team. I'm never, I never do any of these things alone, ever, ever. And I've warned exorcists about that. You never want to be in, you never want to be doing prayers alone, ever. If you have any suspicion that there is any kind of entity attached. Now I've prayed with people sometimes alone, but there's no entity attached. But where it's been demonstrated that an entity is attached, you do not want to be with the same person in the same room with that person alone. Even having them in confession can be difficult. You know, so what you see in Hollywood, um, a lot of that is very accurate. And everything in the movie, you know, in terms of um, the woman and the reactions and the movement and the, you know, the manipulation of the body, that was all very accurate. Because demons can manipulate a physical body, human body, any way they want. They have the power to do that. So... So take us through the the rite of exorcism. Uh, I, I've I've got a copy of it here. I've I very limited uh, knowledge on on the subject uh, beyond a, a couple of books, to be quite honest. But um, it, take take people through. You know, it's a series of prayers, obviously, and and so kind of set it up for for people. Like what what does an exorcism look like? You mentioned there's a team that's with you, and and kind of take us through that process. Well, usually what happens is. You know, we don't always perform the solemn rite of exorcism on a person. We may do what we call prayers or sessions of deliverance, which the difference between a solemn exorcism and a deliverance is that deliverance, deliverances are sessions in which prayers are addressed to God only. In the solemn rite, you have the authenticated ritual in Latin or in a few languages that the Church has has 
um, approved the translation from the Latin to the English, or probably the, from the Latin to the language of the country, including English, um, where it's, it's, a, it's, it's a prescribed order of prayers that are first addressed to God and then addressed to Satan. That's the major difference between a, a deliverance and a, and a solemn exorcism. In a solemn exorcism, you actually have a ritual book. In a deliverance session, you're addressing God, but they, the prayers themselves don't necessarily have the official approval of the church. But they're still permitted because they're addressed to God. And as long as they're addressed to God, any priest can actually pray. Any person can actually pray deliverance prayers. But if, if a person has a demonic condition, you want to be, you, you really don't, you really need to be trained to know what you're doing. So um, one, of, one of the books I remember reading years ago, I don't, I don't, you may be familiar with it, was a, uh, by a, a famous uh, psychiatrist who's now since passed away, Dr. M. Scott Peck, um, who wrote a book uh, called Glimpses of the Devil. And uh, it was just uh, basically a few case studies that through his career, um, he felt, you know, he, he's like, it, it wasn't this, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, this mental disorder, it wasn't this mental disorder. And so he, he, you know, exhausted this list and came to the conclusion that it could be nothing else but, uh, but true possession. And so he, uh, in the book, he talks about how um, he seeks the, the help of um, of an exorcist and and and, and uh, learning more about it. And one of the things that he mentions, and I just want to get your opinion on this, is that he felt as if um, the, the the longer the person had been possessed, the more difficult it was to release them from that bond. Is, is that is that your uh, experience as well? Yes, because. The longer the demonic have an opportunity to to tie themselves to the person, um, the more difficult it is to to basically cast the demonic out. Um, because the, the the demonic have have two roles. One is parasitic; they're living off our life forms, and they're living off our life forms because they're slowly slowly dying. And they've been slowly dying since the great, the great rebellion in heaven. And then the second um, goal that they have is basically to take as many of us to hell with them as possible, to take as many of the children of God away from God as possible, because they know they've already been defeated. They have no chance, and they know that. that they've known that since the moment Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last breath. From that time on, where, where Christ sacrificed, his mission was complete what, and successful when he died. When he sacrificed himself, that was the one true sacrifice that established a new covenant between the world and the Father by Jesus. And that, that is what um, signals Satan's complete defeat. Because Jesus, as God and human, um, is able to offer the one perfect sacrifice. So, up until that time, all the covenants in the in the in the in the Old Testament, they all had been broken over and over and over again. Um, and so that's why God sends the Son and Jesus becomes incarnate in order to be born, to live, to suffer, to die, and to rise. But it is not at the resurrection; it's at the it's at the crucifixion 
when Satan is defeated. The resurrection is the Father's stamp on the legitimacy of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So, um, oh, go, go, go on. That's right. And so, therefore, um, those, those, are the, you know, those are the two reasons why the demonic continue to try and afflict the human race. One, because they themselves are dying and live off our life form. So the man I made mention of who was, you know, in the womb and then was abused at age two and felt that there was something hanging on him, but he thought it was an angel. You know, the, the demons, there's lots of people who probably have demonic afflictions and they don't know it. And they may be sometimes confused with they have a psychological disorder, psychiatric disorder. Um, they, may have a, they may think they have a mental health condition, and they may. And sometimes the cases I have are both mental health and demonic. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're demonic, and they're not mental health. And sometimes they are mental health. And you have to sort all that out because what you don't want to do, um, you, you want to you relieve the person's suffering, but you need to do it in a way that's going to help the person. And so, you know, um, you don't want to perform a, a, an exorcism on a person who's, who's suffering from a psychotic disorder. You, know, you can end up doing a lot of harm rather than any good. And that's why you have a team, you know, and... You only go to a solemn exorcism when all other means of liberation have failed. And, um, and, and, and that takes, that's a judgment on my part. And that's in consultation with a whole bunch of different people. So um, I, you know, we're, we're running a little low on time here, so I only got a couple more questions for you. But um, I thought one thing that was interesting that I, that I made note of that in, in one of the interviews that you had done previously was, you mentioned the fact that in the course of an exorcism, uh, when, when you're addressing the demon or Satan or, or whatever it is that is possessing the, the individual, um, that you address it directly and stick to the facts. Why, why is that? What is the purpose behind that? Well, because the demon, the demon, the, the demons lie. By their very nature, they're, they're deceptors. And so you state, you state very, very tightly to get, attaining the per, obtaining the person's the, the demon's name and the 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 doorway through which they came in and when they're going to leave and you don't want to get into long conversations out of curiosity uh, you only ask the questions you have to ask and and they're going to resist as much as they can because once they give over their name then they lose their power and once they give over their name, then they will end up going. Um, it doesn't mean there won't be a battle, but they, they will go. And they, and they know they've lost. So they'll do everything they can to be as deceptive and cunning and, and strategic, uh, to do the very opposite things of what I'm trying to do. You know, and it's a battle. And they, they want to hide because they want you to believe, like Satan has had such a great you know, track record of, convincing large swaths of our populace that he doesn't exist. So if he doesn't exist, then you have no optic by which to judge evil. So I think the, the important thing to end on then is, is in, in your professional opinion, what, what are some ways that people can, uh, can, 
can protect themselves from from this this realm? Um, well, there there are four ordinary means of protection. I've given talks specifically on what you're asking. There's four ordinary means. There's a faith life. In other words, I have I have an optic in which I judge that there is a supreme being bigger than me, and I would want to stress supreme being because there's lots of people who are quote unquote spiritual. But when you ask what they really mean, they don't really know. And also, there are people who really know what they mean by spiritual. It has nothing to do with any Christian. It has to do with New Age, the occult, uh, Reiki, yoga, used for purposes of enlightenment as opposed to purposes of, of exercise. Um, and that's, it's a very, that's a very different modality to use yoga. When people are using yoga for purposes of um, power, intelligence, and awareness, they're opening doors. Because there is a God, there is actually a God attached to every single movement in yoga. And so the faith life, I have a relationship with God. And in that relationship with God, um, I acknowledge that there is a supreme being, an intelligent being, who's responsible for my creation, redemption, and um, sanctification. Then I have a prayer life. That means that I spend time in a relationship with God. And I have a moral life. It means that my, my, my compass of how I live my life has clarity to it based on a set of moral principles and precepts in which I try basically and, and do good and avoid evil, you know, in, in the most basic sense of the word and without putting too much Christianity attached to it. Um, in, a Christi- in a Christian optic, it would be, you know, how do I live the two great commandments and follow the Ten Commandments? And then out of that, for Catholic, it would be, how do I fortify myself in, 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 in the relationship I have with God, in the intention of building a personal relationship with God and, and living an ordered life? I have a sacramental system, namely the Eucharist, where we would say would be our Mass and confession, and Mass weekly, Eucharist weekly, confession monthly, prayer daily. You know, you follow those four precepts, for a Catholic at least, the chances of anything happening are very nil. For a Christian, it would be the first three, you know, a prayer life, a faith life, and a moral life. For a, non, a non-Christian, it would be basically, how do I live my life in terms of how do I conduct myself? Do I, even if I don't necessarily embrace Christianity, what we teach in the Catholic Church is what's called baptism by desire. So a person who may for whatever reason, not be a baptized individual, it does not mean that heaven is not possible. It means that have I lived my life in the breath of the will of God? You know, if I, I mean, I've met people who I've never been baptized, but, you know, were, were raised by parents who had a very strong ethic, moral ethic. Well, that matters, and that counts, and they may not necessarily have put a God label to the way they've behaved or lived, but they have lived in the spirit of, of what God's will would be for them as far as, you know, how do I, how do I choose to do good and avoid evil? Um, but you follow those four precepts um, that I just mentioned. That's how you basically, those are the four means of protection. Wow. Well, th- Adam and I just want to thank you so much for, uh, I know we had to reschedule here and everything. So we, we want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule um, to, sure. to 
share some of this stuff yep. with us. This is absolutely fascinating and something that, that uh, Adam and I don't know a ton about, so we wanted to get the, uh, uh, the expert on. So thank you so much. Um, before we let you go, though, so where can people go to get the book uh, about your life? And um, if people are in, in need, where, how can they, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Well, um, the, the best way to get the book would be uh, most likely through Amazon. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they, I'm, I'm sure there must be still copies of the book in soft, in, 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 there is, that are in a soft cop, uh, you know, uh, uh, soft copy. You probably could get it through Amazon without any problem whatsoever. I doubt very much of bookstores, uh, although bookstores are becoming kind of rare now. I doubt very much if bookstores will still carry my, the book about me. They did for a number of years, but I think Amazon for sure would. So that would be the best place to get the book. The book's an easy read, and it's very, very well done. Uh, Matt researched, Matt Ballio researched that book very, very well. It's written in a, in not, in a kind of a novel-like form, but it's really written kind of as a textbook. So it has a lot of information in there, but it's a very, very good read, and it's very informative. And for a topic that can be very heavy, um, I think he was very successful at a good balance. Um, as far as reaching me is concerned, in general, what we try and do is um, redirect people back to their own diocese unless they're, unless they're local. So they can, best way would most likely be to Google my name in. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, um, we just uh, appreciate the work that you're doing and, uh, and, and educating us a little bit. And, and like I said, an area that we, we don't just especially as Protestants don't know a ton about. So we, we really appreciate it. Well, you're most welcome. And I was very glad to do the interview with you. And I hope you found this informative and I hope your listeners will as well. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Bye. God bless. And thank you again. Well, that was interesting. (laughs) I know. Uh, It's like I said at the top, I don't know where I stand with this stuff, but either. But when you get a guy who who is um, an expert in this field and yeah. somebody who was certified, ordained, and educated at the Vatican in Rome, who's seen things that he's just like, look, like thoroughly convinced of, and and I think, like I said to you in in private, so the, I think we brought it up in the interview, there are these six qualifications that they need to meet, or at least one or two of, right, to even be considered to go through this process. Um, uh, to even be considered for exorcism, right. much less actually, you know, get uh, actually go through the process itself. Like they have to go through, you know, medical doctors and and psychiatrists and all this stuff uh, oh, beforehand, yeah. um, which I think is also interesting. But um, so, like, I'm looking at this list of six things, right? These six characteristics, these six signs, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. And I think I even told you this. I called you when we were kind of briefing for for this interview. I thought, man, I I don't know, like. Three to four of these are easily like, you know, dismissible. Yeah, you can fake them, you can replicate them. Um, it, it would be very hard to test that, right? Um, because of course, my skeptic brain, pop, you know, starts kicking in. That's what we do. But there are two of them, maybe three of them, but definitely two of them where I'm like, okay, if if I saw that firsthand, I would. It would be nearly impossible to explain. Yeah. So, like, the, the ability to speak a foreign language that you have no proficiency in. 
or like the hidden knowledge one. Yeah, where, knowledge of the unknowable. Yeah. Yeah. I would wet my pants. Yeah, that'd be it for me. Yeah. I'd be like, all right, check, please. Bye. Like, <laughs> where's, first of all, where's the camera and where's David Blaine? No, I'm no, out. Okay. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> well, my, my, it would go like this. It, the order for me would be David, no David Blaine. All right. It's got to be Chris Angel then. Yeah. No Chris Cr- Angel, obviously. No Chris Angel? Oh, okay. We're, well, then we're out. I'm out. <laughs> we're not in Vegas. We're not in Vegas. So, so, so much to say about this. And I'm sure our listeners, if, you know, if they've even stuck around for our debriefing, there's, <laughs> there, there's really a few things that I, that I kind of want to just quickly address. And it's wherever you stand on this, let it challenge where you're currently at. I have never been very susceptible to believing in this kind of thing. Even though I was raised in the church, it was kind of a dry church, sure. not a lot of spirit stuff. Yeah. Uh, we worshiped the Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Yep. And uh, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit had like a shed in the back. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you had to stay in there. He does some stuff. Yeah. I don't know. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. He didn't in my life. Are you sure you didn't go to like a, a like a traditional church? Because this sounds like it. I know, right? So, <laughs> but 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 the thing is, is implicit in a lot of the ways that I see the world or don't see certain things is a way of understanding things that have been given to me in a context that I'm constantly in, and I haven't seen anything to challenge that. Right. Never actually seen anything to challenge that. I don't know what I would think had I actually seen something that, I, that required explaining away. Right. I, I've never even been in that situation. So, look, whatever. Like, is it real? Is it not real? Not really the question. Something, yeah. Something's going on. And I think it's worth consideration. It's worth more consideration than we usually give it. We are so dismissive of these kinds of things, while at the same time, most of us that are dismissive don't want to believe in a, just a materialist perspective that we're just a bunch of carbon chains and atoms and gravity and evolution. We do believe in soul and spirit and we believe in good and we believe in love and we believe, well, then what about hate? And what about the incarnation of hate? And what about the incarnation of chaos? Yeah. And what about spiritual, whatever that even means? We don't even know what that means representations or manifestations of that, how can I not leave that door open? And the answer would be, I would have to shut it without reason when I choose to keep the door to good and love and transcendence and spirituality open. I choose to keep that open because I, I, I want to see a world that way. I don't want to see a world filled with the exorcist. Right. So I intentionally close the door and probably unfairly. Yeah. So I don't know where I'm at. I'm freaking out right now. I'm with you because one of, one of our, our mutual bonds uh, that we discovered early on is that we both have this strong affinity for horror movies. And I think, at least for me personally... Love horror movies. I've always enjoyed them because, to me, it's entertainment. I like to you know, be scared a little bit, you know? And to me, it was always... There's this, there's this defined line between uh, reality and fiction. And as long as we can keep it that way, I'm a happy boy. You know, I don't, I don't want a ghost in my house. <laughs> no, I don't want a ghost in my house. No, I would like a ghost in your house, but I don't want a ghost in my house, right. you know, but, but I think, I think you're right. And I think it's, it's too easy to, to have, um, 
because I'm very self-aware of it, this modern bias that I have, you know, like I'm a very, yeah. I'm a, I'm a well-educated, uh, you know, guy who, who, uh, lives in the 21st century oh, yeah. and, and loves science and scientific advancement. And, and we can explain away a lot of things that would be considered kind of archaic now. You know, we look at, we look at some of the beliefs, um, and, and some of the, uh, the medical practices and, and things of our forefathers. And we look at things like, you know, back in the colonial period, like, or, or better yet, the medieval, the medieval period. And, uh, one of the things that they thought often was that if somebody was like really sick, had like some sort of like legit illness that we would treat now with like antibiotics and things, they would try to bleed the person out or like give them leeches. Yeah. Something like that. Cause they just you need to bleed it out or it's a demon or whatever. And, yeah. and oftentimes like now it'd be like, no, you have the flu or, or whatever. Right. But, um, but I think it's you it's very bacterial easy. Bacterial meningitis, gram-negative bacterial meningitis, which is what Evan Alexander had. Right. Yeah. So it's like nope, he's possessed. Right. Exactly. Like we would we would it's so yeah. So we've come a long way, but at the same time, like I I, I also personally have to be very cautious that I'm not just sweeping everything out. Right. And and being overly uh, modern in that way. Right. And so. Yeah, so I mean, um, I, I've had a lot of. I hope he doesn't mind that I call his name out in this podcast. But uh, my friend Lem from work uh, and I have some some really cool conversations. And and by the way, Lem, you've been like one of the most supportive guys since this project has started. So um, I appreciate that like uh, fully. But um, Lem and I have some really cool conversations about this. And one of the things we've talked about is specifically this topic. And so Lem has seen. Um, you know some some instances that he is convinced were situations of of uh, paranormal activity, or, or like rather like um, uh, you know possessions. Yeah, and he's just like, dude, you don't know, man. Like I've seen this with my own two eyes. I've talked to people like that, man. I've got a really good friend, and I can't discount that. No, how can you discount that? And you know what? You know what we do. You brought up a really good point, and then I think this is the last comment I really want to make because I just want people to make up their own minds. Sure. But, you know, well, one of the things that we've realized with the doctrines of the afterlife and hell is just how much certain strong cultural and um, literary and academic influences creep in from like the Middle Ages and things like that and, and inform these little words that we have, you know, for certain things. And so, you know, you picture images of demons and, you know, we've all seen a bunch of movies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, when we kind of deconstruct the ideas of hell, we get back and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of that stuff's bogus because it came in from Dante and, you know, all these types of things. And so, you know, what it really means is yada, yada, yada. And you don't throw it out altogether, but you redefine it or at least get it back to a place where it's, you know, a little bit cleaner, original translation and definition that, you know, centers back more on like maybe you know, what the original authors maybe had in mind. Mm, yeah. Why don't we do that with this? Yeah. Because it's the same thing. And, you know, call back to an old episode. I think that Richard Beck's book, you know, oh, uh, Devils, Demons, and Doubters for the, Devils and Demons for Doubters and Disenfranchised or something like yeah, that. Reviving Old Scratch. Yeah, Reviving Old Scratch. Yep. is. Um, he talks a lot about that kind of stuff and uh, really, really terrific book. So shout out to Richard Beck and uh, call back to last Halloween. Yes. That's yeah. all I got. Mic no, I drop. think, I think that's a great point. And the, the last thing that I would say to add to that is that um, we, we certainly could dedicate an entire episode to 
um, kind of the the biblical evolution of of the the, the figure um, or or entity of Satan, right? And that sort of thing. And and so there there are questions there even um, because the the Satan that we see in the Old Testament is very different than the the Satan figure that we see in the New Testament. And so like there are whole like uh, you know the whole lifetimes of study dedicated to how that evolution took place and yeah, yeah. what happened in the intertestamental period that yeah. led to the evolution of of that character. And I'm not again, I'm not saying that Satan isn't a real thing. No. Or that, you know, the devil isn't real and, or that possession isn't isn't real, but I think it's something that's worth looking uh taking a deeper look into and, and learning more about. I I you know, absolutely. Why wouldn't you? Right. So, oh, totally. So hopefully uh hopefully this is interesting or at the very least um entertaining. Go um, watch the movie The Right now. It'll give it a whole new shade and color. Yeah, cuz this is coming out on the 30th, so literally the day before Halloween. We did that intentionally, obviously. So, yep. um so hopefully this was at least uh entertaining to you again. Um you know, we've had some listeners who were like didn't didn't love <laughs> the last couple episodes. <laughs> um, I get it. I you know not every episode is. Oh, um, just stick and listen. That's what yeah. this is all about. Yeah, not and not every episode is going to be like your favorite episode. So, um, but I think the important thing, like you said earlier, is that that we need to take a step back and say, like, look, like we don't have everything all figured out, and like certainly areas like this, like demonic possession, life after death, that sort of thing, is 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 entirely um impossible uh to either verify or um contradict you know like we we can neither prove it nor disprove it and so like why don't we just relax let's just chill and like let's listen to the stories that we hear yeah and and let's just think about it and 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 consider the fact that we most of the stuff we're probably not going to know until we die right and and oh, so man, we've got so many other things to say, but I'm just not going yeah. to right now. So let's let's just let's just rest in the ambiguity just a little bit there. Perfect. Yes. Absolutely. So, that, oh. And that's respectful, isn't it? I think so. Well, because trying to hold somebody to be able to communicate largely incommunicable things, sure, in a way that's going to make you feel like you agree or something. Yeah, I mean, that's a daunting task to begin with. We need to be able to sit in disagreement and ambiguity yeah. and uncertainty or language difference, even when we're using the same language system. Yeah. And say, I just want to listen to you. Yeah. And I want to hear what's coming maybe through the words, but but is more than the words you're using. Exactly. All right. So let's leave it with this, because um, we forgot to mention this at the top of the episode, because we're super professionals. Um, <laughs> check out our new website. Oh, yeah. New website. www.thedeconstructionist.com. Um Newly revamped, you can go there, connect to us on social media. Um, you can join our Patreon campaign. We have lots of like rewards and goodies, including a book of the month club where oh, we will send you. One. That's, that's the, the big one. That's the popular one. The book we'll of the send month you club. Buttons, shirts, books every month, uh, whatever the case may be, whatever. If you can't afford it, great. If not, um, it, you know, we appreciate the five star reviews on iTunes. It helps other people find us. Uh, but you can link to us on social media. You can uh, subscribe to us on the website. Um, you can join us on uh, the Patreon family and that sort of thing, and you can listen to brand new episodes and stream them straight from the website now. Just like your dad needed to do. And we have a new blog. Zach Hogue. Zach Hogue was our first guest blogger who wrote a little something for us last week that is amazing. Check it out. He will and not then, be our last guest blogger. Exactly. We have more. And Adam and I both wrote one before that that you should check out. Um, so it's under journal on our website. 
And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give a little love to Derek Webb this week. Yes. Because he's the music. Oh, so good. So that creepy instrumental music that you heard is all because Derek Webb is a very disturbed human being. He's fantastic. <laughs> and we love him. We love him so much. <laughs> and uh, a lot of this is from his instrumental record um, that came out a long time ago that's just a uh, man it's so good yeah it's, check out his new record too uh, his new record is completely amazing so check that out as well we love you guys for now we are your hosts i'm adam narlock and i'm john williamson happy halloween everybody Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.